I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. And we'll be considering this chapter in connection to the Heidelberg Catechism. And we've come to the final Lord's Day in the second part of the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, As many of us know, the Catechism is broken up into three parts, sin, salvation, and service, or guilt, grace, and gratitude. And we come to the last Lord's Day on that middle section on our salvation or on God's grace given to us in Jesus Christ. And this Lord's Day takes up the the, um, biblical idea of the keys of the kingdom. Christ comes preaching the kingdom, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near, And Jesus Christ then commissions his disciples, his apostles, then to go out and to proclaim the good news of that kingdom, which they are going out to do. But the question before us is, how is that kingdom opened to sinners? And if there are those who then come into the kingdom and live ungodly lives in an unrepentant way, how then are they removed from the kingdom? How is the kingdom both opened and closed? And what we see in the Lord's Day we're going to reflect on from the Catechism is that it is opened and closed, closed through the preaching of God's Word and also through church discipline. And so we'll consider that as it's reflected here first in Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 4, and I'll read through verse 25. This is the holy and inspired Word of God. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Four unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city. And amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So far from God's holy word. 
We're going to uh, turn now to the back of our hymnals, to the Catechism, to Lord's Day 31. You should find that on page 886. Three questions here. I'll read the question and we'll respond together with the answers. So question 83. What are the keys of the kingdom, the preaching of the holy gospel, and Christian discipline toward repentance? Both of them open the kingdom of heaven to believers and close it to unbelievers. Question 84. How does preaching the holy gospel open and close the kingdom of heaven? According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened by proclaiming and publicly declaring to all believers, each and every one, that as often as they accept the gospel promise, God, because of Christ's merit, truly forgives all their sins. The kingdom of heaven is closed, however, by proclaiming and publicly declaring to unbelievers and hypocrites that as long as they do not repent, the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rests on them. God's judgment both in this life and the life to come is based on this gospel testimony. Question 85, how is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened by Christian discipline? According to the command of Christ, Those who, though called Christians, profess on Christian teachings or live on Christian lives and who are repeated personal and loving admonitions, refuse to abandon their errors and evil ways, and who after being reported to the church, that is, to those ordained by the church for that purpose, fail to respond also to the church's admonitions, such persons the church excludes from the Christian community by withholding the sacraments from them, and God also excludes them from the kingdom of Christ. Such persons, which promising and demonstrating genuine reform, are received again as members of Christ and of his church." So far from our catechism. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what we see reflected for us in Acts chapter 8 is the exercise of the two keys of the kingdom that the catechism just explained for us. The preaching of the Holy Gospel and also the exercise of church discipline. Just to draw your attention to those, if you look with me at verse 12 of of chapter 8, Here we see the opening of the kingdom of heaven. It says, But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Their baptism was a sign and seal of their being incorporated into the kingdom of God, that they were part now of the community that belongs to the kingdom of God. Here the kingdom is opened through the preaching of God's word. But then we see later when Simon, as this magician, which we'll say more about later, Simon the magician uh, comes and believes that message. He himself is baptized, brought into the community of the church, but then he expresses ungodly, unchristian doctrine in his desire to purchase the power of the Holy Spirit. To which then Peter says to him in verse 22, Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours, 
and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in a gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity, right? So here, the apostles are exhorting him to repent, exercising at least the beginnings of the second key of the kingdom, namely Christian discipline. Now, we don't know what Simon's response ultimately is. We're left hanging with that. Um, that's not necess- it was, is the answer to that question isn't necessarily uh, the point of the narrative. Uh, the point of the narrative is to show us that one who once controlled uh, this city among the Sumerians, uh, this uh, Simon, through his magic, was sort of the religious leader. The word of God triumphs over him. That's the main point of what's taking place here. And yet, what we find is Simon, at the end, being exhorted to repent. And if he did not repent... He, was, he would then be excluded from the community of God's people, from the kingdom. And if he did repent, he would be restored to it. But again, here we see reflected for us the two keys of the kingdom. And as we think about this passage, rather briefly, we don't have a ton of time uh, to reflect on all of the details of it, but I wanted to think about three things. First, what is the kingdom, right? The good news of the kingdom is being preached. So what is the kingdom? What is preaching? And what is Christian discipline? And so these are things we'll flesh out rather briefly, hopefully rather simply uh, for us uh, this morning. So first, what is the kingdom? Right, again, when Peter, or rather when Philip goes to the city of the Sumerians, it says in verse 12 that he preached good news about the kingdom. Now many of us may have heard the word gospel, and the word gospel simply means good news. And in in Philip's day, in Peter's day, and Paul's day in the early church here, um, gospels were pretty common. When a new ruler came to the throne, a new Caesar came to the throne, they didn't have the evening news to tell them that this took place, right? So messengers would be sent out throughout the kingdom proclaiming a gospel, that there is a new king, that there is a new ruler, that there is a new regime in place that everybody must acknowledge, And so, too, when Philip goes out, he begins preaching the good news of the kingdom of heaven, that there is a kingdom that has been established. And this kingdom has been established through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's why when Philip proclaims, it says in verse 12, uh, preached good news about the kingdom, it adds, and also the name of Jesus Christ. The kingdom is tied to the name of Jesus Christ, who is the Lord and the King of that kingdom kingdom. We see reflected throughout the New Testament that when Jesus came, he came as one born as a king, right? The king of the Jews was born in Bethlehem. Now his kingliness, his authority, his royalty, his power and splendor are hidden during his earthly ministry. He doesn't look much like a king. He doesn't look like one of the Caesars on a lofty throne in a powerful position ruling over peoples. But rather, he has nowhere to lay his head. Rather, he is destitute. Rather, he is one wandering about, often persecuted, often one in which people are driving out of their cities. What kind of king is this? His kingship is hidden throughout his earthly ministry to the point that he is one hanged on a cross, cursed of God and of man. What kind of king is this to which he is even mocked? They put on these robes on him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. It's a king who has been humiliated, a king who has been brought to the lowest point. And yet he is king nonetheless, because it is not the judgment of man that determines whether he is king or not, but the judgment of God. 
And though the judgment of man was to mock his kingship, the judgment of God was to honor it. So that as he hangs on the cross and his body is buried, on the third day he is raised. He is raised to receive glory, the glory of a kingdom that will not fail, a kingdom that is everlasting, a kingdom in which there is life, a kingdom in which there is peace, a kingdom in which there is everything good which has been secured by Jesus Christ, by his death. He is a king who has died for his people. He has died for his kingdom that in his death he might secure for his people every good thing, the fullness of salvation. When Christ is raised and then he ascends into heaven as a kind of coronation, he then takes his seat as King of kings and Lord of lords at the right hand of the Father where he is today reigning and ruling. And though his kingdom again remains hidden from the eyes of the world, yet his kingdom is coming in its visible nature, in its fullness, when Christ himself, the king, cracks open the sky, descends upon the clouds, destroys his enemies and ours, and then reigns forevermore in the glories of heaven. And so when we think then about what is the kingdom, well, the kingdom is the realm that Christ has established in which there is salvation in its fullness, in which there is light and there is life forevermore. It is, it is a place where God's blessings are found, and it contrasts itself with the kingdoms of the world. The kingdoms of the world are defined throughout the scriptures as filled with darkness, as filled with death, as filled with rebellion, as filled with power struggles, as filled with all of these vices and evil things of the flesh. And we see the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, standing different from that. The kingdoms of the earth are established through strength. The kingdom of heaven is ironically established through weakness. The kingdom of the world is filled with powerful um, rulers who exercise their rule for the sake of their own gain and their own position and their own splendor. But the kingdom of heaven is reigned by a greater ruler, a more powerful ruler, and yet one who uses his strength, uses his power, not for himself, but that he might redeem his people and bring us to share in his glory and in his majesty. This is the kingdom. And therefore, it is inevitable, it's necessary, it makes sense that you would speak of the good news of the kingdom, right? If this is the kind of kingdom that Jesus Christ has established, if this is the kingdom in which I no longer need to walk in darkness, but I can find light, if there's no longer death roaming the streets, but now life forevermore, well, then that is good news. And the greater the greatness of the good news is found further in that not only is this kingdom marvelous and great and there's light and there's life, but that to enter the kingdom costs nothing. And that's what Simon needs to learn here, right? The magician. Simon sees the power of the Holy Spirit belonging to the kingdom of heaven that it might, as the kingdom comes and redeems and restores, Simon sees that power and says, how much? <laughs> What's the price? How much silver? How much can I purchase this for? To which Peter responds to him, exhorting him to repent because the kingdom of heaven is not purchased. The kingdom of heaven is not obtained through earthly means, especially the power of earthly means, most notably money. The kingdom of heaven 
is received and people are brought into the kingdom of heaven without cost, freely. And therefore, it is truly good news. And so when we think about the kingdom of heaven, we ought then to think about the place in which Christ's blessings flow, the place in which the glory of Christ shines. And today it's hidden on this earth, but one day it is coming. And not only do we think about it in terms of a place, but we also want to think about it in terms of his reign, of his rule. Because while Christ's kingdom on earth is today hidden, it's not seen visibly with our eyes, yet it is present in his church with his people as Christ reigns in the hearts of his people, as we ourselves proclaim Christ as Lord, that is the kingdom of God having come. And wherever anyone calls upon the name of Christ, recognizes his kingship, bows the knee to him joyfully and humbly, finds salvation, wherever that takes place, the kingdom of God has come. And therefore, the kingdom of God advances today as the gospel goes forth. And that leads us to our second point, the preaching of the kingdom. What does it mean then to preach the good news of the kingdom? And this is a vital question, I think, for us to understand. Um, you can, you know, go on the internet and find preachers all over the place. All right, you can find any kind of preacher. Um, but the question before us, so well, what is, what is preaching? And I don't know if we often have that definition even in our own minds. Through, we won't go through the whole history of it, we don't have time for it, but through the influence of modern psychology, we find the most modern preachers, at least the big-name preachers um, in uh, some of these churches you might find, not to say all of them don't preach the true gospel, but typically you find what's become simply known as a self-help gospel. Right? It's, it's a kind of preaching that begins with you and ends with you, and Christ comes in to kind of support you somewhere or another. Some way, some, in some way or another, or another. But what is preaching? What is true preaching? What are we coming to hear Sunday after Sunday? Is it merely a self-help message? Is it merely psychologizing? Is it merely a feel-good message? Well, notice what the catechism says what preaching is. The ki- According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened by proclaiming and publicly declaring to all believers, each and every one, that as often as they accept the gospel promise in true faith, God, because of Christ's merit, truly forgives all their sins. First and foremost, preaching is proclamation. Proclaiming, and it's a public proclamation. Proclaiming and publicly declaring the gospel promise. You see, in this sense, preaching as proclamation begins with Christ. And why wouldn't it? It's his kingdom. It's he who has established it. It's he whose glory that we come to share in. And so it is proclaiming Christ. The substance of preaching, the heart of preaching, is the proclamation of what Jesus Christ has done, which we come to hear. And the irony is that when you begin with self and self-help, such preaching ends up being no help at all. It doesn't truly transform. It may make us feel good for a time, but it doesn't transform like the proclamation of Jesus Christ. Because it's only when we see Christ that we are transformed. By beholding his glory, we are transformed one degree of glory to the next. And therefore, the true power of preaching is found in proclamation, proclaiming Jesus Christ. 
Now that also includes then not just a message of what Christ has done, but then proclaiming Christ and all of the implications that flow from that. This is what we see reflected in, throughout the letters in the New Testament as Paul and Peter and others are writing to the churches. They are proclaiming Christ and all of the consequences and all that must follow from what Christ has done and who Christ is. See, the proclamation of Christ is not something that merely we look at from a distance, but as Christ is proclaimed, he is then believed, and as believed, he comes near to us. We are united to him, and we are changed and transformed. And so, in verse 12, it says, When Philip believed, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. It shows us that as, the, as preaching goes out, as the proclamation of Christ goes out, that proclamation invites sinners, invites people to come into the kingdom to find life and salvation in Jesus Christ, to know him and to be known by him. It's why they were baptized, baptism being a sign and seal of their being incorporated into Christ, into his kingdom, to find and experience and to now possess all that Christ has obtained and won. But it's sort of a double-edged sword, right? Because as the good news of the kingdom is proclaimed and it's believed, people are brought in. But as the good news is proclaimed and that message is rejected, that same message that was life for some has now become death for others, right? It has both opened the kingdom because it says that if you believe in Jesus Christ, you may have entrance. But it also closes the kingdom to those who will not believe because there is no other way into the kingdom but through Jesus Christ, no other name in heaven or on earth by which man can be saved. And in that sense, it's a double-edged sword, right? It both opens the kingdom, it closes the kingdom, right? The kingdom of heaven is closed, however, by proclaiming and publicly declaring to unbelievers and hypocrites that as long as they do not repent, the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rests on them. God's judgment, both in this life and in life to come, is based on this gospel testimony. Much more could be said, but we can see here how the preaching of the gospel, proclamation of Christ and his name, both opens and closes the kingdom. The second key of the kingdom is Christian discipline, right? We have the preaching, but then we also have Christian discipline. You'll notice the order in the catechism. When it first speaks about preaching, it says the kingdom is opened and then it's closed. But now when it speaks of Christian discipline, it speaks of it being closed and then opened, a reversal of, the, um, of, the, uh, of those two terms. And the reason is because Christian discipline, of course, is exercised within the church, right? It's not a matter of disciplining those outside of the church, but it's a matter of church discipline beginning in the church. Because Christ, have, rather, um, according to the command of, of Christ, those who, though called Christians, profess unchristian teachings or live unchristian lives, and who after repeated personal and loving admonitions refuse to abandon their errors and evil ways, and who after being reported to the church, that is, to those ordained by the church for that purpose, fail to respond also to the church's admonitions, such persons the church excludes from the Christian community by withholding the sacraments from them, and God also excludes them from the kingdom of Christ. And again, we had said earlier, but we see this reflected with Simon, right? So as Philip preached the gospel to the Sumerians, People believed that message. They were incorporated into the kingdom of Christ, including Simon. 
But Simon, once Peter and John come to that same city later, Simon sees them, uh, sees the power of the Holy Spirit and desires to purchase it, as we said before. To which then Peter says, repent. Right? Peter is beginning the ex- to um, exercise, in a sense, church discipline with Simon. Now, again, we don't know the outcome of Simon's life here at this point, but had Simon repented, he would have been restored. Had Simon not repented, he would have been excluded from the kingdom of Christ. Further detail about church discipline is given by Christ himself in the Gospel of Matthew. If you read those chapters there, 16 and 18, as he speaks about the church. But church discipline is not meant to be something that is exercised lightly as we recognize the magnitude of what's being said here. Rather, as the Catechism rightly and wisely reflects, it's after repeated personal and loving admonitions. It's not the moment a a person in the church sins that they're excluded from the kingdom. No, they're called to repent. And we all are called to repent Sunday after Sunday as we look at our lives to turn from our sins daily and to look to Christ and grow in Christ-likeness. But church discipline is exercised when a brother or sister in the church is in sin, commits a sin against a brother or sister, is walking contrary to God's word, is saying something like Simon is saying, that it's a desire to purchase the power of the Holy Spirit, not to understand the true gospel. After repeated admonitions, they are then brought to the church, and a process of church discipline under, it goes underway, which ultimately would lead, if they do not repent, to their being excluded from the Lord's Supper, and also then from the kingdom of Christ. And when this happens, church discipline is exercised in order that such a person might be ultimately restored, that they might come to feel and recognize the magnitude of their sin and what they are walking in and where they are walking to as they are walking contrary to Christ. It's done with heavy hearts. Um, There are times from this pulpit that we've made announcements of church discipline, and often uh, there's tears, and often there is a sense of just my heart pounding. I'm not usually one to get too nervous, but it's in those moments where my heart is pounding because these are serious matters and deeply saddening things when brothers and sisters begin to walk contrary to Christ and are excluded from his kingdom. And yet, when they are excluded, we still pursue them. There are those who've been excluded from this fellowship, from the Church of Christ here, And yet we still pursue them and desire that they would return to us. Such persons, as the Catechism says, when promising and demonstrating genuine reform, they are received again as members of Christ and of his church. It's a beautiful thing when those who wandered come back. And it's not with shame, but it's with great joy in the hearts of God's people that we receive them again into the fellowship and into the fold of Jesus Christ, into his kingdom where there is life everlasting. And so we've seen, very briefly, the kingdom of Christ. We've seen the preaching of the gospel as it opens and closes it. And we've seen um, also the second key of the kingdom, Christian discipline, as it closes and then opens the kingdom of heaven. And therefore, we are to recognize the power of preaching, the power of Christian discipline, and all the more excite us then to sit under, especially the preaching of God's word, to hear the good news of the kingdom, And to recognize fully and wholeheartedly and joyfully and humbly that Jesus Christ is king. He is a generous king. He is a wise king. He is a loving king who has died for me, 
who has been raised from the dead, who is today seated in glory in heaven, and he is coming again in the fullness of his kingdom. When those in his kingdom today who have come by hearing the gospel preach and receiving that in faith, they will with great joy see their king descend upon the clouds and bring with him life everlasting in his presence forevermore. Amen. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, what a wonderful thing that you have accomplished in your Son, that by sending him, you brought the kingdom of heaven near. And Father, we thank you for Christ, one who has come as a humble king, one who rode into his own city, Jerusalem, on a, on a donkey, there not to, not to take power, but to lay down his life for his people, that he might then take it up again and enter into glory as King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, we pray that as his kingdom has been established and as his reign has begun, even in our hearts, that we would more and more acknowledge him, that we would more and more bow our whole lives in every area of them to his reign, that we might honor and glorify him. And we pray, Father, that the good news of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom and the name of Jesus Christ would indeed go forth in power in this city and that you would continue to preserve and increase your church here, that more and more may join us in praising the one true God, and we might look to Jesus Christ in humble dependence today and forevermore, and might with great um, expectation look for his return when he comes with the fullness of his kingdom. Father, we pray that more and more would come to know this, especially in a city with so many people lost and walking in darkness. We pray that they would come to know Jesus Christ the King, we pray this all in his name and for his glory. Amen.